0: The Mayan culture was thriving as early as 800 B.C., and its roots go all the way back to 2000 B.C. The Mayans had elaborate government systems, a communication and travel network, their own calendar, a system of writing, and distinct religious practices that included human sacrifice. The total Mayan population could have been as high as 22 million with up to a 100,000 residents living in the ancient city of Tikal alone. The last Mayan city fell in 1697 as a result of the Spanish colonization of Central America. The Mayans were as much of an established civilization as any in the Middle East at that time. Yes, the Mayans. Perhaps some can remember back to the late 1940s, when the United Nations was clamoring to carve out a region in southern Mexico to create a new nation that would be the home of the ancient Mayan people. Or maybe you remember hearing the headlines declaring how Mayans from around the world were moving back to their native lands 300 years after their once thriving civilization had disappeared. Mayans from around the globe were looking forward to restoring their ancient language and religious practices that included human sacrifice. Not. Because none of that ever occurred. (laughs) How amazing and bizarre would the fabrication I just spoke be if it were true? Such an event of a lost civilization coming back together to become a modern, first world power might be unknown to our planet, if not for one such true story involving the nation of Israel. There are some important differences worth noting. Israel fell out of existence for over 1800 years, whereas it's only been 300 years that the Mayans' culture ceased to exist. Also, the Jewish residents of Israel were scattered throughout the world, where several purposeful attempts were made to erase them from history. Yet, Despite the anti-Semitic efforts of Rome, the Inquisition, the Russian Tsars, Hitler, and many others, in 1948, Israel again became a nation. Its rebirth and subsequent survival has been nothing short of an epic miracle. Around 2,500 years before Israel came back together as a nation, the prophet Ezekiel was told by God that first the nation of Israel would cease to exist, And be dispersed. This occurred just as prophesied. Ezekiel was also given a vision from God that the nation of Israel would live again one day. Using a couple well-known symbols, Jesus also spoke about this event. While speaking to His disciples on the Mount of Olives, Jesus moved from the topic of specific signs that will occur at His coming to speaking of recognition of the general season. Jesus often spoke in parables to illustrate concepts. Such is the case here. Listen to his words recorded in Matthew chapter 24, verses 32-33. to 33. Now, learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is still tender, and it puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So likewise, when you shall see all these things, know that it is near." right at the door. The book of Mark puts it this way in chapter 13, verses 28 to 29. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When her branch is still tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happen, know that it is near, right at the doors. Finally, the Gospel of Luke puts it this way. This is Luke 21, verses 29 to 31. And he told them a parable. Consider the fig tree, and all the trees. When they now shoot forth, you yourselves know that summer is now close at hand. So also you, when you see these things happen, you know that the kingdom of God is close at hand. A parable is a short allegorical story that's used to illustrate a principle. The story is generally comparable parable to or like something else. We know this fig tree illustration is a parable and not a lesson on fig trees because Jesus called it a parable. To understand this parable, we need to decipher it. We need to recognize what are we comparing the fig tree to, what does it mean that the twigs get tender, and what does summer represent. Defining symbolism doesn't get much easier than this. All of the symbolic language is defined in the very immediate context in the Olivet Discourse. First, the fig tree. What does that mean? The simplest explanation of what the symbolic fig tree represents is found within the immediate context, just a couple sentences after the term fig tree is used. The fig tree represents, quote, these things, unquote. The simplest understanding of what these things are would be to understand them as the things that Jesus spoke of immediately prior to his telling this parable. Those things include false prophets, persecution, a great falling away from the faith, the abomination of desolation, more persecution, and finally, a worldwide earthquake, and the sign in the sun, moon, and stars that we talked about in the last podcast. So, the words fig tree equals the words these things. What about putting forth its leaves or shoots? Well, when you see the fig tree putting forth its leaves or shoots is the same thing as saying, when you see these things, the signs, happen. The words putting forth its leaves equals the word happen, or perhaps occur. What then does summer represent? The phrase, you know that summer is near, is essentially the same in all three gospel accounts. However, the gospel of Luke is the only account that gives us a clear definition. Summer being close at hand represents the kingdom of God being close at hand. That's to say that the return of Jesus and his bringing the kingdom of God with him is close at hand. Inhabitants of ancient Israel, just like people of the current time we live in, were able to read the seasons by observing signs such as a springtime bud putting forth its leaves. This type of sign, although not being accurate to the day or hour, has always served as a reliable approximation of what general seasonal change people can expect. Jesus is telling his disciples that by observing the signs, although they won't know the exact day or hour, they can recognize the general season of his return. This interpretation I just gave you of the meaning of the parable of the fig tree is great and works by itself without further analysis. However, there may be more to what Jesus was talking about. Certainly, the most important thing to glean from this parable is that the signs Jesus has just described will be recognizable indicators of his imminent return and the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. However, you may remember, earlier the same day Jesus gave his talk atop the Mount of Olives, there was a famous encounter with a fig tree. Because that miraculous encounter was still fresh in the minds of the disciples, it's possible that the fig tree bringing forth its leaves may symbolize more than what first comes to our minds. Given their recent experiences, how would the disciples have looked at this parable? Here's the story of the fig tree that took place the day before the Olivet Discourse was given, as found in the book of Mark, chapter 11, verses 12 to 14. It says this, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, that he is Jesus. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. After cursing the fig tree, Jesus and his disciples went on to the temple in Jerusalem that day. Then They returned to where they were staying in Bethany that Monday night. The next day, Tuesday, the day Jesus gave the Olivet Discourse, as they walked along the same route as the day before, this happened. This is found in Mark chapter 11, verses 20 to 23. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look! The fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt it in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Jesus cursed the fig tree for not bearing fruit. The very next day it had noticeably withered up and died. The same day the disciples took note that the fig tree was dead after Jesus had cursed it, they also watched Jesus curse the leaders of Israel and Jerusalem because that establishment was also not bearing fruit. Jesus demonstrated with the fig tree what would happen to Israel. He was showing the disciples the authority that He possessed through what happened when He cursed the fig tree. Using nothing more than his words, Jesus condemned the fig tree to its destruction. He did this to demonstrate what would happen to Israel when he used his words to pronounce judgment on its leaders. The passage found in Mark 1120 20-24 was so much more than a lesson on how to put one's faith to work. That passage may contain a lesson on faith, But in the context of the important historical events that took place later that day, Jesus was first and foremost relaying an important prophecy. As he explained what had taken place with the fig tree, Jesus went on to hint to his disciples that he intended on cursing Israel. This mountain that Jesus said could be taken up and cast into the sea was not just any mountain. Jesus was talking about a specific mountain. The common Greek language of the first century did not utilize what we call in the English language indefinite articles. Indefinite articles are words such as a or an. However, when it makes sense in English to do so, translators may insert those words when the definite article, like the word the, is not connected to a noun. The noun in this case is the word mountain. It's clear that this is not just any old mountain. There is no room for a translator to slip in an indefinite article, like a or an, since the original Greek uses the word translated into English as this, in referring to a specific mountain. This specific mountain was apparently in close proximity to Jesus and his disciples when Jesus made the statement. Jesus was traveling from Bethany west to Jerusalem. Given where Jesus and his disciples likely were when Jesus spoke these words and the direction they were going, he was probably speaking of Mount Zion, which lay ahead of him. Now, there's a number of hills and mountains, including the Mount of Olives, which make up the geography in and around Jerusalem. Mount Zion is a literal mountain that sits close by the old city of Jerusalem. The reason Mount Zion stands out from the rest is because it's synonymous with the nation of Israel. This being the case, to paraphrase what Jesus was saying in Mark eleven twenty 20-24, a word spoken in faith could result in the nation of Israel being cast into the sea. Prophetically speaking, where the land oftentimes represents the nation of Israel, the sea oftentimes represents the Gentile nations. Jesus' prophetic words of this mountain, Mount Zion, or the nation of Israel, being cast into the sea, or into the Gentile nations, were literally fulfilled between 70 and 132 A.D. After the destruction of Jerusalem and the Second Temple by the Romans in 70 A.D., The Jewish diaspora began as the Sanhedrin was disbanded and the Jewish leadership was all exiled. With a second revolt, known as the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, being put down by the Romans in 132 A.D., Emperor Hadrian renamed the region of Judea Syria Palestine and the city of Jerusalem Aelia Capitolia. Along with the remaining geography, Hadrian banished all remaining Jews from the city the inhabitants of Mount Zion had all been truly cast into the sea of Gentile nations. This passage certainly contains information regarding the importance of faith. However, it's unlikely that Jesus was simply trying to teach his disciples and us a quick lesson in faith at the expense of the fig tree, and by specifically using the example of this mountain being thrown into the sea. It's just too coincidental. However, Jesus did say, Whatever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. That's in Mark 11.24. The fact that whosoever or anyone could say to Israel or Mount Zion, be cast into the sea, and that it would be done, is only because God had already determined that action would take place. Ezekiel prophesied about this event. Jesus sealed the deal. Obviously, God would not act as anyone's genie in a bottle and cast out His chosen people from the land if it were not already His own will to do so. If there's a deeper lesson on praying in faith to be gained from this passage of Scripture in light of the greater context, this is it. Pray about whatever you want in faith according to what you know God's will to be, and it's going to happen. I really hope you get this. By doing so, one's faith becomes greatly simplified. One's faith is no longer about hoping that what it is you're praying about will happen, but rather one's faith is simply trusting that God is who He says He is and knowing that He will do what He says He will do. I have faith one day Jesus will return to this earth and establish his kingdom. However, it is not my faith that will bring about this event. My faith comes in the form of my belief in what God has told me will happen, and it will happen. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The difficult part of all this is that we don't always know the will of God. But rather than patient and prayerful study of the Bible in an attempt to discover the will of God, we often resort to telling him what we think his will should be. In an earlier story Jesus told, he compared the action of a fig tree being cut down after not bearing fruit to people who do not repent. This story comes from Luke chapter 13, verses 6 to 9. Let me read it for you. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, Well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. This parable must have still been fresh in the minds of the disciples as they watched an actual fig tree wither and die after Jesus had cursed it. The disciples may also have been familiar with Israel being symbolically represented by a fig tree. This occurs at least twice in the Old Testament. You can look up that in Jeremiah chapter 24 and Hosea chapter 9. Considering the fig tree parables, watching the fig tree wither after Jesus had cursed it, and knowing that Israel was symbolically represented as a fig tree, perhaps the conversation before the disciples bedded down for the night went something like this, What's up with all the fig tree stuff, John? You saw that tree wither and die this morning too, right? Then, tonight Jesus compared a fig tree putting forth new leaves to signs he was talking about which will indicate the kingdom of heaven is near. Oh yeah, I saw it too, Pete. And wasn't it the Master who was just telling us a story a little while back about a fig tree that doesn't produce fruit? Yeah, that had something to do with those that don't repent. Based on him chewing out the Pharisees today, I think he was mostly talking about Jerusalem. Remember how he cursed Jerusalem the same way he did the fig tree? Well, I don't know if it went anything like that or not, but it's... uh. It's interesting to think about, you know, how the disciples processed all the stuff Jesus was telling them. Was it a coincidence that Jesus was using a fig tree to make a point during the Olivet Discourse? Or could he have known that the disciples would have associated what he was saying now with the amazing thing that happened that morning? Admittedly, Luke's Gospel weakens the case for this theory slightly by including the statement, "...and all the trees, not just the fig tree." It's very reasonable to conclude that Jesus expected his fig urative speech to be taken by his disciples as a whole and that they would pull all of the lessons of the fig tree they had personally witnessed together. The disciples could have understood that like a cursed and cut down fig tree sending forth new shoots, Jerusalem would be cursed, cut down, and again come back to life one day. If this is true, then seeing Jerusalem showing signs of life again in the future after essentially dying could be considered a sign that precedes the second coming of Jesus. As I earlier said, the prophetic words of Jerusalem being cut down were fulfilled in 70 A.D. by Roman General Titus. Any signs of life that remained afterwards had been squashed by 135 A.D. when the Jewish population of Judea was dispersed from the land there were no signs of national Israel left in the land. That is, until a little over 1,800 years later, on May 14, 1948, when Israel again gained its independence and sprang back to life as a nation. In June of 1967, all of Jerusalem was reclaimed at the conclusion of the Six-Day War. Seeing Israel again come to life can be likened to what seems like a dead fig tree putting forth its new, tender spring leaves. Few people stop and ponder what an amazing prophetic fulfillment the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob returning to their promised land was in 1948. It was only by Israel returning to their native land that any of the other prophetic events Jesus, Paul, John, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, and all of the other prophets spoke of in regard to end times events could be fulfilled in a truly literal way. It was plainly a miracle. So let's move on to what Jesus said next in the Olivet Discourse regarding what generation will witness his return. This is from Matthew 24, verse 34. I'm telling you the truth. This same generation will not pass until all of these things take place. Mark chapter thirteen thirty puts it this way. I'm telling you the truth. This same generation will not pass until all of these things happen. Finally, Luke chapter 21, verse 32. I'm telling you the truth. This generation shall not pass away until all this happens. What generation is Jesus referring to? Is it the generation he was speaking to on the Mount of Olives or the generation that would witness the signs he was speaking about? You can see how the preterists might think that Jesus meant it was the generation he was speaking to, maybe even the specific disciples he was speaking to. But as you will see, that can't be the case. All these things that Jesus spoke about include the abomination of desolation, the sign in the sun, moon, and stars, the gathering of the elect from the four corners of the earth, and the second coming of Jesus. Since this generation would witness all of these things, the first century generation Jesus was addressing in person on the Mount of Olives has to be eliminated from consideration. By making this statement, Jesus was saying two different things. All these things will take place within one generation's worth of time. Secondly, the generation that sees these things occur will also see the second coming of Christ and the end of the age. History and time passing has answered the question of what generation will witness all these things. Since this statement is made immediately following the parable of the fig tree, it seems possible that the generation of the end will also witness the fig tree showing its new signs of life. Conservatively, the scripture is referring to the generation that is around that will witness the abomination of desolation occurring and the sign in the sun, moon, and stars. The broader interpretation is that it's this generation that sees national Israel starting to show signs of life again that will be around to see all of these things take place. If the second view is true, wouldn't that mean That we're now living in the generation. Maybe, maybe not. If the second, more specific interpretation involving Israel again becoming a nation is true, there are still things to think about. Has Ezekiel's prophecy been completely fulfilled? Did Israel truly come back to life in the way prophesied by Ezekiel, or would that require them to also completely turn to God? Just because man has recognized Israel's political borders, has this action fulfilled what God had in mind? Do the descendants of the tribes of Israel need to first rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and reinstitute the daily sacrifice? God only knows the answers to these questions. Ezekiel's prophecy likens Israel becoming a nation again to bones, once scattered throughout the world, being rejoined, flesh being put back on the bones, and life breathed into the reconstituted body. I personally think of Israel today as having its bones back together after being scattered throughout the world, but those bones have not had flesh put back on them, nor life breathed into them. You can read about all of that stuff in Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 7-9. to It's my opinion that life will be breathed into the nation of Israel either when God causes the remnant of Israel to be sealed at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation period or at the second coming when they recognize Jesus as their Messiah moving on in the Olivet discourse Jesus tells us our current heaven and earth are temporary all three versions of Jesus's next statement found in Matthew 24:35 Mark 13:31 and luke 21:33 are identical here's what they say heaven and earth shall pass away but my words shall not pass away here jesus informs his disciples that even though he is talking about the end of one age his logos commonly translated as his word will endure into the next age he will be after all the king of that age Jesus has just warned of tremendous destruction where literally the foundations of the earth will be shaken. Every mountain and island will be moved. His coming will change everything, except His Word, His Logos. This is a consistent principle found throughout Scripture. In speaking of the eternal nature of God, Psalms 102, verses 25-27 to 27, says the following, Of old hast thou laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yes, all of them shall wax old like a garment, as a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. Then in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8, we can read this. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. And turning up to the New Testament in First Peter one to 23-25, you can read this. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which lives and abides forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which the gospel is preached to you. Jesus and his word, or logos, will exist forever. With this short sentence, Jesus summed up at least the last 11 chapters of the book of Revelation. The passing of this current planet and how it functions as we know it is no small matter. Yet Jesus' statement is simple regarding the final results of the signs. Well, let's not breeze over this statement about Jesus' word, as if this is merely saying that what's contained in the Bible that Jesus said will always be important. The Greek word translated into English as word is the same Greek word as used in the Gospel of John chapter 1. That word is Logos. If you've ever done a deep dive study into Logos, you know that it means so much more than only a word as in what sentences and paragraphs and language is made up of. Logos represents the essence of God's wisdom, logic, eternal ways, and plan. It's that wisdom, logic, eternal ways, and plan that will never pass away. Not simply the words of Jesus— As John 1 tells us, in the beginning was God's wisdom, logic, eternal ways, and plan. And all that became flesh in the form of Jesus. It's all that that will never pass away. Well, there's a lot to look forward to. Every physical thing we're familiar with will pass, but Jesus will go on. The framework of our reality and all of what we've experienced will be no more except for Jesus and those that have placed their trust in His reality. That's where all of the signs He spoke of are finally leading to. We won't need to take any of man's discoveries with us. Man simply discovers what God has already invented or created. Man manipulates and rearranges the elements. God creates the elements out of nothing and then commands them. Having been gathered to Him, will be face-to-face, not with the discoverer, but with the actual creator of everything that currently is, and that will be. There'll be no need or lack of anything, since we'll be living with the God of fulfillment. This will not be a temporary situation. It won't be like going on vacation, (laughs) where the thought of returning to work is always looming overhead. Nor will it be like retirement, where although the idea sounds great, Almost every day, there's some kind of reminder how temporary and limited our capabilities, resources, and physical life is. In summary, Jesus used the imagery in the parable of the fig tree to bring home his point that those who are watching for signs will be able to recognize his return is close at hand. Further, this parable may also represent Israel coming together again as a nation in their original homeland. Ezekiel wrote of national Israel's death and rebirth. This prophecy was fulfilled, at least in part, as Israel once again became a nation in May of 1948. God had preserved a remnant of his chosen people for over 1,800 years, despite several great efforts of attempted genocide. Israel coming back together as a nation is not comparable to anything else known to history. There are no cases of other people such as Assyrians, Hittites, Babylonians, Persians, Mayas, Incas, or any other ancient group returning to their lands and within a few decades becoming a first world nation complete with nuclear capabilities. Jesus stated the signs would occur within one generation. Secondly, the generation that sees all the signs take place will also be around to witness His coming. Although events have taken place in history that may resemble, at least in part, the prophecies of the Olivet Discourse, none of them have ultimately qualified as having completely fulfilled the prophecies. We know this for sure, because many generations have passed, and Jesus has not returned. The generation that sees the actual signs take place will also see the return of Jesus to this earth. The Almighty God is the ultimate recycler. Plunging this present earth into His divine washtub and wringing it out like a wet towel, He'll make all things new again. Jesus, the logic, wisdom, and core of God's plan, and His kingdom, will outlast the current terrestrial sphere that we now inhabit. Those who He has set apart for Himself and purchased with His own blood will endure with Him for all time and eternity. That is the believer's blessed hope. Next time, we'll sort out the different harvests of the souls associated with the end of the age mentioned in the Bible. That in order to understand what Jesus is talking about in the Olivet Discourse. Until then, God bless and Maranatha. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H Ministries. And I'm on Instagram, at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at com, Or email me at doug at com. That's doug at d-o-u-g-h-o-o-l-e-y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.